I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. And as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPL Roundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Jake, Newcastle fan. You can get me on Twitter at Jake Jackman with two ends. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie, here to talk primarily about Burnley, and I've turned up for the podcast even though I wasn't in pre-treason training this week, so just goes <laughs> to show that you don't need to do training to, to turn up when <laughs> called upon. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Kane. <laughs> yeah, I think as yeah, a podcast, <laughs> I think as a podcast we can all agree that you have done your job more than Harry Kane has in the past week yeah. or so. And you don't pay me nearly as much as Harry Kane gets paid. Well, I don't like <laughs> to talk about the show's finances publicly, but yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> you did not get paid as much anyway, as Harry Kane. For once, I've, I do have something to plug. For once, um, I edit the None Never newsletter, which is new for this season, all about Burnley. That's at None Never on Twitter, and I'm at Jamie Smith Sport. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter, at Kevroff. Thanks so much to you two for coming on, despite the wage packet maybe not being as desirable uh, as either of you would like. And if you try to force a move to another podcast, I'd wholly understand. Um, <laughs> we'll leave the Kane City stuff for a bit later. Obviously, we led with it last week. But I just wanted to start off by talking about how exciting it is to have fans in stadiums. Again, Jamie, I'm pretty sure you made it uh, yourself yesterday. So what was just your guys' initial reaction to either being there live or getting to see and hear fan noise when, when watching at home? Yeah, for me, I w- wasn't at a game, but it, it was It's weird to see it, first and foremost. It, I mean, it's what we've been accustomed to for like, I don't know, like all of our lives apart from like a year and a half. It was still just weird to see it. Um yeah, it was good. It definitely added something. I think Brentford on Friday night was really good to see. Obviously, it was their first Premier League game. Um, and you got to see the, the new stadium being full. You obviously got those scenes with the um, with Thomas Frank and some of the supporters at the end, which was really nice to see. So, yeah, that, that really did start the weekend off well. And you got the feeling that teams at home, um, <laughs> me and Jamie might not agree, but teams at home did sort of get a bit of a advantage early on. Um, and, and there definitely seemed to be a bit of a... Uh, impact on on what's happening on the pitch so that was uh, also uh, good because I think there's a lot more away wins last year than than had historically been the case um, so it'd be interesting to see if that if that theme does sort of continue especially over the first five or six weeks as players sort of recalibrate to playing in front of supporters uh, there's obviously going to be some some players that benefit more from it than others I think Jamie Vardy was seen celebrating in front of the Wolves fans so yeah he's always a player that that likes playing in front of fans and winding up opposition fans. I'm sure he's he's going to be somebody that, that does really well over the next few weeks. Um, but yeah, it's just great to see. And as much as the pandemic continues in some form, it, it does feel like it's another step in the, the return to normality, um, which, which is which is nice. And, and seeing it this weekend compared to all the matches last year, you can just see how how much better football is with, with fans in the ground. Even if you see losers, it is a lot better. Yeah, it's, it's completely different um, 
experience, obviously, being back in full stadiums. I didn't get to go at the end of last season when it was sort of small capacities um, because of restrictions. But, yeah, completely different now. Um, I was surprised how how quickly it felt normal again. Um, I suppose I'd, over the summer I went to the, the Euro semi-final to see England, caught coronavirus, so it wasn't really worth it. Uh, but but yeah, it was it was really nice to be to be back watching football again. It felt normal quite quickly, um, and to just checking the results again. And Burnley and Newcastle were the only teams to lose at home, so it's pro- you've probably booked the wrong guests for this weekend <laughs> to talk about the impact of fans. But yeah, the first half at Burnley, uh, we'll talk about the game in more detail, I'm sure, but. I certainly felt that the team were feeding off the the energy from the crowd. They were snapping into tackles. There was lots of um, high pressing up the pitch. They seemed to really relish that. And I think Brighton struggled with the atmosphere a bit. I was talking to a Brighton fan for the newsletter, which I've already plugged twice in the first five minutes of the show. And they were saying that they felt Brighton didn't really get to grips with with the, the sort of passionate atmosphere. Maybe they just weren't used to playing in front of that sort of home fa- home crowd that was getting on their back and stuff like that um the flip side that i suppose i should really have to touch on is um turf mall was apparently the only premier league ground where there was noticeable boos for taking the knee um i've got to say i'm not really surprised that that was the case i was hoping it wasn't going to be as bad as it was um i saw quite a lot of people burnley fans on twitter afterwards saying Oh, there was just a few boos and it was quickly drowned out by cheers. Well, I've got to say where I was in the stadium, that's not the case at all. There was a lot of boos um, and not that many people clapping, cheering. I was clapping as hard as I could. felt quite uncomfortable because there was almost nobody around me um, that was clapping. It made me feel like I was standing out like a sore thumb, to be honest. Uh, It did sound like it was coming from the home and the away fans, the booing. Um, So it's not just Burnley fans, but... Yeah, it was weird. I was reading up about it today and I was kind of hoping it had happened at other stadiums so it wasn't just us. Um, but no, just us. So that's great. I think a lot of fans already have this perception about Burnley being a, like a backwards place full of racists from the 19th century and stuff. And when things like that happen, it's just like you're just ruining the reputation of, of the town, of the club. And we saw last season when we played Man City away and a group of fans paid for a plane to be flown over, trailing a banner that said "White Lives Matter." And Ben Me came out and spoke very passionately about it. Very clear that these fans should not affiliate themselves with Burnley. We don't want them. And a year later, we're having to talk about people booing, taking the knee, um, and you talk about it on Twitter, and then you get the same old flag emoji Twitter accounts talking about Marxism and talking about how they want to defund the police. It's, Taking the knee is nothing to do with Marxism or defunding the police. It's a gesture to support people who are suffering from racism. So it's an anti-racism gesture, which means if you are against anti-racism, you are racist for me. That's as simple as it gets. So that was the downside of being back at stadiums for me. Um, Don't really want to talk about it again. So if we could all behave and not be... uh, I can't even think of a word that's not a swear word, but everyone could just behave and just educate yourself on taking the knee because it's it's not what I want to see. It really would probably put me off going if it's going to be like that all the time, to be honest. 
Yeah, obviously disappointing to hear that that happened, but uh, appreciate you bringing it up because I'm sure it'll kind of be swept away by by the overall positive reaction to fans being back overall. Um, Jake, you mentioned the the home winning percentage. Obviously, it took a dip uh, over the last year and a half while um, while COVID was happening and while fans weren't allowed in the stands last year. Only six clubs had fewer away wins than home wins. Um, but this year, you know, maybe we're expecting that to return a bit. Do you think we've seen that this week? I think it was seven of the 10 this week saw home teams win. That's a bit above the average, which is usually 56% uh, in the Premier League era on the year that home teams win. But uh, are we thinking that this is like kind of the first sign that home field advantage is kind of back in a way? Yeah, I think so. Um, it, it, it's obviously too small a sample size to be going off this one week. Um, because probably a lot of that yeah. depends who, who you're up against and where, but I, it probably will do. I think it does have a massive impact, um, especially when when things are, are going well. So you got to, um, yeah, I think that that will be the case, and uh, yeah, I think we've seen early signs of it this weekend. Yeah, I agree. Um, obviously, Norwich were the other team that lost the home, weren't they? But they were playing Liverpool, so but like everyone understood that was going to be the case. Um, our home form was diabolical last season I think we only won four four games one of the worst home records in the league and normally Sean Dash is Burnley you associate them with being particularly strong at home so I would hope it's the case that results really pick up um, but then yesterday was probably one of the games that we'd expect to win or certainly not lose so fingers crossed on that front I do think it makes a difference I'm interested to see how it ties in with refereeing um, there's been a lot of talk over yeah. here um, on TV about this lighter touch in quote marks that's apparently being used for VAR. Um, I think we've seen some goals that have stood this weekend that might not have last weekend. But I wonder how much home fans might have an impact on refereeing decisions this season. I think that's one to keep an eye on because referees have got used to being able to make whatever calls they think is right without tens of thousands of people shouting at them to tell them that they've got it wrong, even though they might have actually got it right. So I think that's something to to maybe look at over the coming weeks to see what sort of impact there is there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't really considered the like fan impact on refereeing decisions, but uh, sometimes that's not a delight, I'm sure, for the referees. So uh, we'll see if they get kind of uh, forced into a couple of calls that they wouldn't have, have made, like you said, over the last year and a half. Um, as we are talking about, because it is the first weekend of the Premier League returning, I was just curious from you guys, what your favourite moment was from this weekend? Um, it's, there's quite a few good moments. I mean, there's a load of goals, which it always helps as a neutral. I uh, wish my team conceded a few of them, but um, there you go. Um, I don't know. It's just good to, to have it back in general. I don't know if one moment sticks out to me. Probably the Brentford game, um, that that moment with Thomas Frank at the end with the supporters uh, and you, obviously there's all the images that have gone around about that that was great to see. it's always nice to see a team that hasn't been in the Premier League before especially if they I think they do have quite a rich owner but they've done it sort of uh, sustainably so it's not like they've invested loads and loads of money they've sort of brought the money in and then used that to, to push on so it's good to see a team like that come up and do really well um, especially against a team like Arsenal though they're not what they once were. <laughs> They're still beating a traditional top six team in the Premier League in your first game uh, under the lights at your home stadium. It's difficult to to top that really from this weekend. Um, 
Tottenham's win was good as well, but they beat City one 0 at home every year, so it's not not quite <laughs> <a> special. <laughs> yeah, Pep even joked about. Well, I don't know if he was joking. I didn't actually see the interview, but the quote was about this is the same result that happens every time they visit Tottenham. <laughs> but Jamie, what were some of your favourite moments? Yeah, I don't know if Pep's capable of jokes. I don't think he's got like these serious <laughs> intense. Um, yeah, I was going to talk about Brentford as well, but this is what happens when you go second, um, I suppose. Um, I did quite enjoy that they scored from a long throw, bringing back the Rory Delap style <laughs> from the 90s or whatever it was. Over all the, the pre-season talk about, oh, Brentford, a front foot team, really attacking, really fun to watch, and then they scored from a long throw and a recycled corner. So that was really enjoyable. Um, I suspect a lot of teams will be working on defending long throws before playing Brentford. And like Jake, I really enjoyed seeing the scenes at, at full time. It was like they'd won the World Cup, but I absolutely don't begrudge them. I remember what it was like when we played our first home game in the Premier League. It was a Monday night, Man United at home. Robbie Blake scored an amazing volley to win it. And it really felt like we'd arrived. One of the few times I've cried at football. I was a lot younger then, don't judge me. Um, so yeah, certainly the Brentford one. Um, and Jake's already mentioned Jamie Vardy celebrating in front of the Wolves fans, but Vardy's goal, um, I think that was the best goal of the weekend. There's been a lot of really good goals over the first weekend, and hopefully that continues. But the Vardy one really stood out for me. I think people people sort of forget how brilliant a finisher Jamie Vardy is. It's just routine. He scores those sorts of goals. He's got no right to score from there. Um, and everyone goes, well, it's just Jamie Vardy. That's just Jamie Vardy doing Jamie Vardy things. But yeah, absolutely incredible goal. And always love to see Jamie Vardy giving it the big beans to the opposition fans, even though they've probably done nothing to wind him up over the course of the game. He just decides that he's got to find fuel from somewhere. So yeah, really enjoyed Jamie Vardy's goal this weekend too. Yeah, I saw, it might have been the Premier League or maybe PL in the USA that, that tweeted out that and they asked, uh, what was Jamie Vardy shouting, wrong answers only? And the top one was, uh, it was Rebecca Vardy, which I thought was uh, <laughs> pretty solid. Um, yeah, I agree with both of you, because Jake, you mentioned just seeing a lot of goals and, and you picked out the Vardy one there in particular, Jamie, but like that Manchester United Leeds game, just every goal was a banger. All of them were great. It was a, That was a really, really fun watch um, as a neutral. And also, Paul Pogba gets so much stick in the media, even though I don't want him or United to do particularly well. There is like a nice little bit of catharsis when he does well, and you just wonder how they're going to fit it into the narratives that they've already crafted. Obviously, all of our clubs are used to narratives being made for us by what is supposed to be neutral broadcasting corporations. But, um, yeah, I mean, four assists in the first game of the season, uh, right while everyone's criticizing you, is a pretty nice uh, hush-up now kind of moment um, for him. Obviously, the the Tottenham stuff, I could go on forever about, about the result today, some of the individual moments. Um, the Sun goal is obviously the huge one, but loads of other players had great moments. Lucas had multiple really great runs. Jaffa Tanganga basically man-marked Grealish and Sterling at the same time uh, and ended up coming off the better. So that's why he was my personal uh, man of the match guy, which we'll get to our man of the matches a bit later in the show. But obviously that was great. Nuno celebrating, fancying his name already after the first match, which I don't think ever happened to Mourinho, which I'm really delighted by. Um, that we never heard any, like, Mourinho's blue and white. Now, I'm not even going to finish it, because it never happened. Um, but anyway, 
obviously just great to have the Premier League back at large. And uh, as you guys said, the the big one was Brentford. And I'm really glad that both of you mentioned it on the Brentford side because Twitter was very just ha-ha Arsenal. And I was just like, I can't even fathom the emotions that you would have having never seen your side in the Premier League unless you're 70-plus years old. Your old stadium gets taken down and you weren't able to celebrate it before that happened. (laughs) You weren't able to go to your new stadium when it was built because of COVID. You finally get to go to the new stadium. It's in the Premier League. It's against a club like Arsenal and you win 2-0 in prime time. That's just, man, (laughs) I'm not going to be as blatant as the camera guys just zooming in on every old-ish looking person and assuming that they hadn't been around the last time they were in the top flight. (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, I, I just think that that was such an awesome moment, and I'm glad that both of you mentioned it on the Brentford side as well. Um, all right, I figure we'll talk a little bit about transfers. Obviously, there's still a couple of weeks left in the window, but I was just curious to hear from you guys who you think has had the best overall transfer window and who might be the best individual signing for a club. Um, yeah, I always hate this question because we always talk about a club having a great transfer window, and then they do terrible. terrible like but... Tottenham last year. <laughs> I also feel like yeah, Fulham are excellent for this because every time they're in the Premier League, they always win the transfer window and get relegated. Um, so it's it's a tough one to call, really. Um, <laughs> you'd probably say Manchester United have had quite a good transfer window and the fact that they've probably brought in two players that get into their starting eleven and improved them. So it's not like they've signed players like Fred. They have signed two generally good players. So you'd have to put them up there. Um, lower down the league. Uh, everybody looks at Palace. Um and I think they could be this year's Fulham in that they win the transfer window and then I don't have a really poor season and maybe go down. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, they've, they've probably won the transfer window in the players they've brought in because they've brought in a lot of talented players, but they've probably had the worst transfer window in the manager they ended up appointing. So, you know, it swings around about there um, with Palace. Um, they're the two that jump out. I think Palace are the popular ones on, uh, if, you, if you were to ask most people. Um, and, and Manchester United as well um, have had a quite a good transfer window. Um, still a, a lot of business to be done I think um, <laughs> there hasn't been a lot going on at um, the clubs we support although Tottenham have sort of brought in a few players but um, yeah it's, I think there's going to be a lot more to be done but Palace seem to be the, the popular ones and, and Manchester United are probably the ones for me I think they've done the most to improve their team um, the best overall side in uh, it's, it's, it's quite, quite tough you'd, I don't know you probably you might have to go for Lukaku for that I think that he, mm. I think he's going to come and, and do really well for Chelsea. They they obviously lacked a, a goal scorer last season. I think Jorginho might have been their top goal scorer. Um, might be wrong there, but he wasn't far off there. Uh, and they, they didn't have anybody that got into double figures in the league, I don't think. So um, he, he's going to guarantee them goals. So that's, that's going to add something to their team. Um, although I, I don't know if he's, he's, if he's going to make them that much better. Because um, they're already a very, very good team that would have challenged for the title this year with or without him. But it definitely does seem to be they've strengthened a weakness they have, so you can't. Um, so I think he's he's going to be one of the signs of the season. I'd probably say um, slightly uh, biased. I think Joe Willock was quite a good signing. I think last year we, we were a lot better when he was in the team and the formation we currently play centres around him being on the pitch. And as we saw today with the, the two midfielders we had, that we didn't have players that, that could cover the pitch and, win the ball back in central mid and we just got ran through in that area whereas last season Joe Willock was in there and the formation was working a lot better purely because he has the energy and the ability to get box to box so if we continue this formation he's going to be quite important and the fact we signed him probably means that we'll get enough points to stay up again so um, 
yeah, it, it, it was made even more evident today in, in the second half that the way that Rice and Suchek just completely played through us and, and John Joe Shelby and Isaac Hayden were pretty non-existent. So, um, yeah, he's, he's going to be quite an important signing. But um, I think Lukaku is, is the, probably the best one so far for me. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to argue with Lukaku. I think he obviously addresses a, a clear need for Chelsea to have a reliable goal scorer. I did think it was interesting that everyone decided they needed attackers when last season they spent what two hundred million pounds on attackers and mm. they still needed an attacker. So that's a bit of a head scratcher. Obviously, Timo Werner didn't really work out there. So Lukaku obviously knows the Premier League is a proven quantity. I think he's a better player as well since he left Manchester United. I think he's improved in Italy. He seems to be the complete striker now and. Really, just the only thing Chelsea seems to be missing someone that can put the ball in the back of the net regularly. So, I think they could have a real push for the title now. And Lukaku scoring lots of goals is going to be a big part of that. Um, I think Leicester have had a really good window, actually. I feel like Leicester always recruit yeah. really well the last few years. They just seem to find the weaknesses in the squad, bringing good young players with resale value. Um, I can't say that I've watched that much of the Austrian top flight in the last couple of years. Sorry, but Pats and Dacker, very, very hipster choice. Um, Salzburg have obviously produced a lot of high-quality players in the last few years. Dacker seems to be the next cab off the rank and could be the sort of player who Leicester are looking to sell for a, a lot of money in a couple of years if he piles up the goals in the Premier League. Um and he seems to be a Vardy successor as well. So that they've planned ahead for Jamie Vardy not being around forever. Uh, Simare, again, I can't say I've seen a lot of him in Liga, but people seem very excited about him. So Leicester seems to have made quality additions that might be able to help them bridge that little gap to the top four. They might still not quite have enough, but I think um, you couldn't really ask for much more from them in the transfer market so far. They've kept all their best players and brought in a couple of really solid additions as well. Obviously, Fafana getting that injury was shocking for them, yeah. but Vestergaard's a, a solid defender, so I think Leicester have pretty much a complete squad now. Uh, they've got players like Harvey Barnes back from injury as well. James Justin's going to come back from injury, so I think they look really strong now. Um, the other player I'd pick out as well is Lukaku for the best signing. Again, quite a boring choice, but I think Jadon Sancho to Manchester United is an absolutely brilliant signing. Um, for the fee as well, obviously, it's still a huge amount of money. But considering that Sancho, for the last couple of years, although the Bundesliga doesn't have that high profile compared to like... like it's going to get a lot better. Um and like Lukaku at Chelsea, Sancho at United fills a gaping hole in that team, really. Last season they had Greenwood filling in on the right wing, or Dan James might play, and that's quite a big drop-off to the rest of their attackers. So Sancho will just go into that team, play right wing more often than not, certainly when Rashford's fits play on the left, and just be an elite world-class talent that slots into a team that's also got Cavani, Bruno Fernandes, Harry Maguire, suddenly the spine of that team looks very, very strong. Um, I think there's still doubts about the manager. They've obviously lost a lot of semi-finals, the Europa League final last season. Um, I don't think Solskjaer will be getting many other elite club jobs. It's obviously his United links that got him that job and arguably kept him in it. But I think they have now furnished him with a squad that's ready to be competitive. 
in the last few seasons, I don't think United have had the squad to be Premier League contenders, really. I know they were second last season, but there was a distant second, really. Um, but I think they will be a lot closer this time. Certainly no excuse for, for, for Solskjaer. Now he's got a world-class defender in Varane, world-class wide player in Sancho. The two real things that were missing from their squad. Um, just while Jake was talking, actually, I was browsing transfer marks, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware of. Mm. And Kev, one of the few players to have signed for a fee less than his market value on transfer markets is Brian Hill. Ooh. First. I don't know how much of it takes into account the Lamella bit. Right. Oh, are you still there? Jamie? Uh, Jake, are you still in? Can you hear me? Oh, yep. So you dropped off right after you said the Lamella bit. Right. Yeah, I don't know what the the Lamella part of that deal takes into to account on transfer mark, but they've got Hill as worse, twenty seven million pounds, and the fee that Spurs paid was less than that. So, assuming he fulfills the potential that people who watch Sevilla says he has, sounds like a really good deal. So, well done, Kev, and well done <laughs> the new um, director of football chap at Spurs. He looks like he's got a bargain there. Yeah, he he seems to be doing very well in the transfer market. The manager market, he did incredibly poorly, pretty much start to finish, although it seems like people are starting to get get around behind Nuno. Uh, Yeah, Brian Heal's a really interesting one because he's like in that wonder kid category, but he's still in that kid category. Um, So I'm not really sure how much we're expecting from him this year. But yeah, obviously paying, I think we ended up paying like near 20 plus Lamella is a lot for someone that's only 20 years old. But uh, as many people have brought up, when people are talking about these Spanish, um, the, the next coming Spanish generation of like Ansu Fati and um, how have I forgotten his name? He played 72 matches this year. Uh, Pedri. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's uh, why I got paid the small bucks. There you go. <laughs> so that's why we get paid literal dollars sometimes. Well, I guess not all of us. That's a very American thing. Anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm optimistic long term, but it's an interesting one short term. But just just to be in the name, just to be in like the, that category of Ansu Fati and Pedri, I think is very promising, um, considering how other players uh, regard him. Although it does feel very much just like a Lamella rewind, giving a promising young winger the eleven shirt and then just like waiting some years to find out if he'll live up to it. But anyway, I I digress. I think both of you hit the nail on the head on on the best individual signing. I think it's easily Lukaku because. I don't think that adding Sancho and Varane makes United as viable a title threat under Solskjaer as giving Tuchel Lukaku does. I think, like like you guys are saying, just the fact that all that was missing last year was that Timo Werner couldn't convert his chances. And now you bring in a striker that can either score those chances instead of Werner playing at all, or have somebody that Werner can run off of, which he's done very well in the past. Um, it really feels like they've solved their one big thing. I don't even think they need Jules Koundé, but if they did, that would just be like even more ridiculousness. I, I, I think Tuchel is one of the best um, tactics men in, in the Premier League, if not the best, you know, since Pep can't manage to figure it out when it matters. Um, but yeah, just giving him Lukaku seems absolutely unreal. And, and Jamie, you complained about going second. I'm going to complain about going third. <laughs> Lester was my pick as well. And I think part of it is that they did most of their business a while ago. Like, Daka and Sumari were pretty early in the window. 
They bring in Bertrand on a free, which a lot of clubs might just shrug at. But they lose like seven defenders every single season and still manage to churn out decent results. And I think, you know, having Bertrand as a backup option at left back will be really big for them. And who knows? Maybe he'll hit a vein of form and lock down a spot for them. And as you said, the the uh, injury to Wesley Fofana is just horrible. And I'm wondering if that's another reason why people aren't, aren't touting Leicester as much. But getting Vestergaard in as cheaply as they did, I think, is worth it. I, I think Vestergaard, and funnily enough... Uh, Joe Willick are two players that Dave and I identified as players that people were going to spend way too much on, and that just didn't happen. I think both of them were got by for for actually pretty reasonable fees, and I think both of them have landed in really good spots where where they can succeed. So, yeah, Lester and Lukaku for me. I guess I just went kind of chalk <laughs> in the end. Um, <clears throat> figure we'll just quickly talk about um, a couple of the matches today. Obviously, uh, Jake. No, nah, we aren't going to talk about both of them. We're just going to talk about Tom like we talked about in the preview. All right, uh, now I figure we'll take a quick second to talk about the Tottenham versus Manchester City match. Uh, the biggest match of the day, no offense, uh, Jake, um, but I'm sure you don't really, really want to relive too much of that, especially the second half. Um, obviously, the narrative surrounding it, as we mentioned last week, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is uh, Harry Kane because he's kind of being tug of war between these two clubs, although one is willing to pay him and the other seemingly is not. Um, but the fact that Tottenham were still able to get a 1-0 result, still very impressive, although, as we've joked, pretty common for Manchester City to go to Tottenham, win the XG battle, but then still lose on the day. Obviously, I have my own biases, but I, I think there were tremendous individual performances throughout the team. Tanganga, Lucas, both had great matches. Deli Ali in his new box-to-boxier role, I think, was absolutely fantastic. He was putting in tackles everywhere. And Dyer and Davinson Sanchez weren't terrible. Three months ago, I wanted both of them out of my club. I'm not super sure that that's changed, but a very good performance from them on the day. But but from a neutral's perspective, what did you guys make of it? Yeah, I think playing Manchester City just really suits Tottenham. Um, and it's easy to say that after they've won, but I just think, um, like like you just talked about Dyer and uh, Sanchez, I think they're really good defending deep and small spaces, but they're less good when... Tottenham, you know, are playing higher up the pitch and they've got big spaces to, to defend against counter-attacking players. That seems to be when they have their problems. So it does really seem to suit Tottenham playing this game uh, because they are able to sit a little bit deeper. They don't have to dominate the ball. And then you've got, you know, Lucas Moura, Steven Bergwin, both, um, you know, hot and cold players, but they've got plenty of pace and, and thrive when they've got space to run into, which you have against City. Um, and then obviously Son is just a, a, a master at when playing on the counter-attack. We saw today he was slightly off it in the first half. Didn't seem to be taking those shooting opportunities when they came, but then he, he wasn't going to make that mistake a third time in the second half and he, and he put it away. So, yeah, it was, it, I thought Tottenham played really well. Uh, you could see what Nuno's brought to them in terms of, I guess, just uh, improving the morale and morale around the squad. I think that, that was a big problem under Mourinho. They seemed to, they were buying into sort of like the, the tactics again and, like you said, Dele Alli looked really good um, for the first time in a long time in, in a slightly different role. Tanganga looked really good. It, it was just a really good to- uh, performance from Tottenham. Um, I do think Manchester City looked really vulnerable defending um, counter-attacks, which is quite unusual. They're normally quite good at giving away cheap fouls in the middle areas of the pitch. Fernandini is normally good at it. Rodri when he's on the pitch. And they just weren't seemed to be... that Their positioning seemed to be slightly off and it, it, it didn't... Yeah, it looked like there's plenty of work for Pep to do. I, I don't know how much of that has to do with the players that were missing, um, especially uh, another centre back to play with Ruben Diaz because Ake did look, yeah, he, he looked really out of place in that game, uh, and he looked really out of place in the City squad. 
but no, I thought it was a good good result for Tottenham. I thought they deserved it, despite maybe City winning the XG, as you said. Uh, but I think Tottenham were the deserving winners, and there's, there's reasons for why that happened. If you're going to give up all the ball, you're probably going to concede a lot of shots. But I didn't think City had too many great chances. Um, they had a couple, and I thought when De Bruyne came on, he did look a class above on that pitch. Mm. And he easily could have scored and got an assist, or, or even both during that time. I think if, if he was fully fit and playing the whole game, it's probably a a different story. I think he's, he he would have been that influential. He, he did, you know, you saw that when he was on the pitch. I thought Grealish looked, he looked good without doing anything spectacular. Um, but yeah, I think City, um, they, they will be a lot better when they've got their their um, the rest of their team back. Although you know they've all those players cost a lot of money, so they should probably be better without them. But they're still quite reliant on them. I think De Bruyne especially and and Stones or Laporte at the back Zaki is just such a big downgrade. But um, yeah, I thought Tottenham deserved it. Played really well, uh, and there was big positives. And and watching those two teams today, the one that would benefit from having Harry Kane more was the one that he's not currently playing for, which <laughs> which is quite funny. But um, yeah, I I I think that um, Tottenham should today they'd be fine if they did let him go. Um, obviously it's gonna it it would be a big loss, but I feel um. The way you played today, you probably wouldn't be able to play with Kane. Having those three quick attackers is so dangerous, and and the way they interchanged, it was a, it was slightly different to what we're used to seeing um, with Kane on the pitch. Um, so yeah, it, it obviously if he did if he did stay, he's going to score twenty goals and have an amazing season for Tottenham. But I do think that there were signs there that might have convinced Daniel Levy that maybe he could let Kane go and reinvest in the squad, and maybe that could be the right decision. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I think, obviously, um, the Spurs were only going to play one way in this game. Everyone knew that was the case. Titi knew that was the case. Pep knew that was the case. But stopping those three lads up front when they break at such pace, Son's obviously one of the best players in the world at what he does. Um, It's easier said than done, isn't it? Um, And we might talk about City having players missing, but what the team was worth... 550 million, I think someone on TV said they had 350 million on the bench. Um, it's quite amusing to me that they've spent a bazillion pounds on players in the last decade, and their left back is still Benjamin Mendy or, <laughs> or Zinchenko, who's a good player, but he's not a left back. Like at some point, do they not think about sorting out the left back position rather than buying yet more attacking players? Anyway, um, I'm not in charge of transfers at Man City, obviously. And You'd be paid even job. better than us. Uh... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, funny one. I do think the way Spurs played is a bit of a blueprint for how Nuno wants to play. Uh, obviously, you'll know more about this, Kev, but Spurs are one of these clubs like West Ham. that They've got this idea that they have to play the West Ham way or the Spurs way, and it seems to date back to generations ago. I'm not mm. sure it's like, I don't know. Obviously, everyone would love it if their team played amazing football all the time, but it comes down to results at the end of the day. And I think appointing Nuno, you are going to get that sort of pragmatic sort of coaches in the sort of Mourinho vein in that he will be, I think, reactive rather than proactive more often than not. But I think the players that Spurs have, they're suited to playing like that. Like Jake says, if, if Kane's not available or if Kane leaves, Son will play through the middle. They've got Lucas and Bergwijn who can play out wide. Some of the fastest players around, so it would make sense to play on the on the break, although 
what you then do when you come up against a Burnley who also want to play on the break and soak up pressure. It'll be quite interesting. You need to have different ways of playing. Um, I thought I thought it was a really strange performance from Manchester City. Really, the first mm. ten minutes, I think it was City from last season. They looked purposeful. They moved the ball at pace. Got players into really dangerous positions. I think Sterling and Grealish looked like they had a good understanding already. Had some good combinations in the first few minutes, and then nothing really. Didn't really see anything from City in an attacking sense. Spurs dealt with everything that City threw at them extremely well. Um, De Bruyne did make a difference, like Jake said, but he came on for ten minutes at the end. Like how fit is he that he can only play ten minutes? You know what I mean? It's it's a funny one. I think, mm-hmm. obviously, a lot of City's players went deep into the Euros and you've got to manage those players carefully. And I think Guardiola's probably taken a long-term view in that if you give the players a proper break, they'll be able to go fully into the season rather than starting really well and then running out of puff in February, March when they've got Champions League knockout games, probably. So I think it's tricky to get that balance right. Obviously, they had key players missing, but like I said, like the amount of money that they spent on that squad, they should have better players out on the pitch than Mendy and Ake, who essentially cost them the goal by allowing Son to shoot from there. So, yeah, I think there's a lot more to come from Man City, obviously. When they get everyone back and fully fit, they'll still be the team to beat. But, yeah, really positive signs for, for you from the way Spurs approach that game and show that you can win without Harry Kane. I mean, I think Jake's right. I think if City come back in with a bigger offer, surely Levi looks at the way you played in that game and it's got to be more tempting because you've just shown that you can beat the best team in the league without Kane being available. Hmm. And we've done it consistently. That's four times now since we were dubbed the Harry Kane team by Pep Guardiola that we've beaten them without Harry Kane. Um, yeah, you must just wish you played City all the time. <laughs> it's it's a pretty good time at home, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think both of you make a very interesting, if not concerning point, which is not only did Tottenham perhaps prove that they don't need Harry Kane to pick up big results, as we also proved during the Champions League run. This is not the first time we've been without Kane for a while and still gotten results. I think it's equally concerning that City probably leave that match thinking they need Kane more. Um, I don't think that means the price goes down. I just think that makes it more likely that City will be willing to pay the price. And, And I wanted to touch on this when we were talking about Lukaku as well. I think City thought they could win the title without a center forward. They did it for parts of last year. I think reports of that are largely exaggerated that they won last year without a striker. They still had Aguero. They still played Jesus a fair amount. But I think they thought they'd be fine. And I think Chelsea adding Lukaku is enough of a threat that they have to really consider if they want to stick with that plan or if they want to spend, you know, the $150 million, arguably $150 million plus that it'll take of pounds. Sorry, all the people that got excited about that $150 million euro thing that they never even submitted. Um, but yeah, I think it's all interesting. And, and Jamie, just touching on, on one of your points about um, Nuno and, and being pragmatic, I think a lot of people were worried that he was going to come in, play three at the back, play exactly how he played at Wolves, um, and, and we'd just be watching Mourinho all over again. But I think there's a there's a stark difference in the way that Nuno sets up versus Mourinho, even though the point of both of their ideas was to absorb the pressure and then counterattack. In theory, it's the same, but I think there's a lot more structure 
to build up play. I think you'll you'll notice this year you're seeing a lot more triangles being formed. I mean, it's not a complex thing. It, it means you usually have an open pass, but it just seems like the the structures of play are more. I don't want to say rigid, but more defined at least. Um, where under Mourinho, it was basically dark. hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Don't concede at the back and then Harry Kane will score up front. It was not a very tactically nuanced thing what Mourinho was doing at Tottenham. And I think even though Nuno did come out to defend, and, and as you said, Jamie, everyone knew we were going to have to do that. I think there's a thoughtfulness to it that it didn't feel like there was under Mourinho, where when things went bad, we were all like, of course it did. Um, and, you know, some of their chances could have gone in. The Mares one could have gone in, and we're telling a slightly different story. But I really like what we saw from Nuno thus far. Um, and I think the most interesting tactical thing is how narrowly we play and defend, basically giving up the wide spaces and just saying, you're going to have to get the ball into the middle at some point if you're going to try to regularly score. And, you know, they weren't really able to do that. As you mentioned, they didn't have loads of goal scoring chances. Um, the Mara's one sticks out. I don't think they had their first shot on target until the 74th minute. Part of that was that in the first half, they were just hitting all of their shots wide, but it's definitely interesting. And, and we'll see, as you said, what, what Nuno will do against teams that we aren't expecting to, to just absorb their pressure and what we do when, when the onus is on us to get out and, and play some football. All right, we will take a break from that. All right, we'll take a quick break there, and then we will be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. All right, Jake, we will start off with you talking about Newcastle. The first half seemed great. Second half, a little bit less, but as a Newcastle fan where... There continues to just be this um, lack of enthusiasm since all of the, the buyout stuff fell through and Mike Ashley has remained. But, but there still seem to be some pretty promising signs. Was that your sense and your sense of the fan base at large that, that this is a pretty promising uh, performance even if the end wasn't delightful? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I came away from that. Considering losing 4 to at home in the opening game, I'm, I'm probably more encouraged than I should be. Um, I think that in the first half, we were really good. I thought we deserved to be winning at that point. Great lot of chances. Uh, I think if Wilson and St. Maximan stayed fit over the course of the season, um, or at least played the majority of minutes, um, then we'd probably be fine purely because uh, we, 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 I think it's quite nice to have me and Jamie on the podcast. We're, we're two very, we're in the same position in the league, but we're, I think the way we're going to stay up is in completely different ways. Like Burnley, we know how they stay up. They'll, go on a poor run then they'll keep four or five clean sheets in a row and, and get 12 points out of nowhere um, and then I think with Newcastle us this season we saw at the end of last season 
I think we're just going to try and attack, and then if we concede, that we concede because we we don't really have very good defenders. They're all pretty average. We have a midfield, or we did today have John Joe Shelby and Isaac Hayden, which are the same midfield we had in the championship. Uh, we were playing on just Shelby as our main sitting midfielder. So if you if you're playing in there, you're asking for trouble. You're always going to get counted on. Um, so yeah, I think we are going to concede a lot of goals, but I think we were playing against a good team as well. Like, and I, I think there's going to be times this season where West Ham are going to struggle because I, I don't think their squad's big enough for Europe. But um, we know how good they are. They finished in the top six last season. They've got really good players across the pitch, and because we've got obvious weaknesses. Uh, especially in the middle, of, sort of the middle of the pitch, they've got two players there in Suchek and Wright who are very, very good, and they just saw where the weakness was and and set pressing traps in the middle of the pitch to to get nick the ball off us, and then we leave our back three so exposed when we try and attack. So it's just it did it sort of um, in the second half they they sort of saw what's happening and and made the tactical switches to take advantage of that. Whereas I think a lot of teams in the Premier League wouldn't have that quality in those areas and sort of uh, um, quality across the rest of the pitch to do that. So I think if we deliver that performance 38 times a season, we might concede 70 goals, but we probably win enough games to stay up. That's, that would be my reading on it. it. The only problem we have with Bruce is he does like to switch things up um, if things don't go well. So you might sort of see what happened today and think, oh, losing 4-2, we've got to make things tighter. Um, but I think the squad of players we have, we're more likely to win a game 3-2 uh, or 4-2 as we did last season. I think we beat West Ham, Southampton uh, 3-2 and we beat uh, Leicester at the back end of the season 4-2. So I think we, we're designed that if we play this way, we're, we're more likely to, to win matches than we are to win a match 1-0. I just don't think we've got the quality at the back to do that. So, um, yeah, it's encouraging. And I think that in the next couple of weeks, I, did, I wasn't that impressed with Aston Villa this weekend. Um, and Southampton the week after. Yeah, I think there's probably points there in it for us because I think they're two worst teams in West Ham. Um, and we're obviously going to bring Joe Willock in. The talk is we'll probably bring a couple more players in as well. So if we did br- bring in a better centre-back and maybe a better sort of holding midfielder, we've been linked to, to Anguissa from Fulham. We've also been linked to uh, Hamza Chowdhury. He's, linked, he's a player that, that Bruce really wants. I'm not sure how good he is because he barely plays at Leicester. Um, but, you know... If we did bring in uh, sort of a player like that, I think that would really benefit us because Shelby, although he's very good, he makes really pretty passes sometimes. He's a liability out of possession, and that sort of showed today. And and I think at the back, Kieran Clark has probably had his day as a Premier League centre back. Uh, I think at the back, uh, we do need a new centre back, but we do also have players to bring in. I think Fabian Shaw and Jamal Lascelles building their match fitness up. So if they came into the team, we'd probably look a bit better than we did today. Um, but yeah, I think if, if we you know St. Maximan, Wilson and Joe Willock coming back, he, he's obviously not going to score score seven and seven like he did last season. I think we've got to temper expectations a little bit. But um, yeah, I think he's going to be a, a good signing and he's going to add energy and legs into that middle of the park that we didn't have today. Um, but sort of towards um, the 60th minute mark, they just, we just got overran in that those middle areas. So if, I think if Willock was in there, we probably wouldn't have been overran as much. But yeah, I think that we'll, there's enough to be encouraged about. We just need to try and maybe um, improve things at the back and, and the midfield. That was the, the key positions. And I think Matt Ritchie is, is a bit of a liability at the back, at wing back. He doesn't really... He, the amount of times goals come from just him not tracking back or 
letting a runner go. I think we saw on the penalty save today, like um, the penalty is a bit of a dodgy decision. I don't think it was a penalty. I think that, you know, if you go to the Sky Sports studio after the game and you get all three pundits saying it's not a penalty, then it's probably not a penalty. Um, but the fact that we saved the penalty, um, Freddie Woodman did on his day, we saved the penalty, we, we just had nobody following in on the ball. And that's just a frustrating goal to concede. If you think, like, oh, save the penalty, oh, none of none of his defenders want to back him up. It's, it's frustrating. There's a lot of things to improve at the back, but I think I saw enough going forward that if we keep playing like that, there will be games where we, we comfortably beat teams at the bottom of the table. They just don't have that, the same quality that West Ham do in those middle areas. Yeah, you brought up a lot of names there that you might be bringing in, and that, that's kind of what I wanted to follow up on. It is you, I know you mentioned you're being linked to Carter Vickers from us, as you mentioned Hamza Chowdhury, Rangzambo Angisa, who was fantastic last year before whatever happened happened. I think he got sick. I shouldn't speculate because I don't actually remember, but he was really good the first half of last season. Um, you obviously already added Joe Willick. What impact do you expect to see from Willick? And I guess you already touched on some of those other positions, but like, how good could this team be if you add some of those other pieces? Instead of looking down the table, would you start to look up it? I think we've always got to be as realistic as possible in that under Mike Ashley, we're never going to be much more than a, a mid-table Premier League team. So uh, it doesn't matter who comes in. That's just the... the just where we're at and it's unlikely to change um but i think if i think what we really need we need some pace in our in that back three because it's so one paced back there today that as soon as antonius or, or, or ben rama got the ball and was running at them they were just going to backtrack and backtrack it just we need we need um a bit more pace and sort of mobility in the back line so i think that's something they need to, to target and i know they're looking at cameron carter because he doesn't really fill me of enthusiasm but he probably has a, a few more physical attributes that our backline lacks. And I think he's worked with Graham Jones before at Luton and Bournemouth. So that's probably why we've been linked to him. And, and he must be highly rated if we are looking to bring him in, or at least uh, Graham Jones rates him highly. Um, so, yeah, I think we do need to sign a centre-back um, with a bit more pace. I think we're probably going to use the two Premier League loan spots as well. And I think we used it with Joe Willock last year. I think we'll probably, if there are, there is uh, some good players uh, at the bigger teams that can be loaned out. Probably, I'm thinking Hamza Chowdhury on this one after they signed Samari. They've got quite a few good players in in midfield. I think he's the type of player that we might be able to get on loan. Um, so yeah, I think we, they're the two main positions we need. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we're ever going to be that much um, better than we finished last year. I think finishing 12th sort of flattered us a little bit. Um, but I think that we should be fine to finish in that sort of 12th to 16th position again, as long as we keep the key players fit and um, bring in um, a bit more pace at the back. I think we should be fine to finish there. I think watching us today, I just think we're a, a really low functioning, um, a worst coached Leeds in that we are just going to attack and that's all we have. But Leeds do it in a really coherent, tactically disciplined way, whereas we just sort of throw loads of men forward, hope, play wingers at wing back and just think, oh, if we just keep attacking, let's hope it works. And we just have no sort of coaching in, in how to get back into position at the back and to, to actually defend. So I think that there's going to be a lot of goals in Newcastle matches this season, whereas I guess in the under Benitez and under the first year of, of Steve Bruce, we were very boring to watch and just sat had like 20% possession a game and just hope for the best. There is... There is a little bit more going on with us tactically, but 
it's still there's still big problems at the back that we are going to concede four or five goals I'd, I'd imagine several times a season but we are also probably going to score enough goals against the teams lower down in the table that, that will see us stay up Gotcha. Well, then I'll come to you now, Jamie, because as we talked about a little bit before we hit record last week, some people not optimistic about Burnley's chances of staying up this year, but then kind of rounding out the thought with, but you have Sean Dice, you'll probably still be okay. Is that kind of the consensus with Burnley fans as well, that as long as he's at the helm, you'll be all right, even though it seems the playing squad is uh, maybe not as good as it once was? Yeah, I think so. And I think as well, Burnley are well used to being predicted to be relegated. I think probably every season since we came back up, we've been tipped to go down by people who obviously don't watch us very often. Um, And I think it's kind of wishful thinking, to be honest. I think a lot of people just want Burnley to be relegated. (laughs) Um, So they predict us to go down and then hope that they're going to manifest it somehow by putting it in the predictions. yeah, I think if you, you talk to people who obviously watch a lot of Premier League football, they'll know that a good manager is worth a few points. And Sean Dash knows the Premier League inside out now. He knows what it takes to get wins in the sort of games that we're going to need to to win. Like, for example, no offence, Jake, when we play Newcastle home and away, they're going to be big games for us, sort of matches that you'd expect us to pick up points. Although I think we lost both last season, so I'm clearly just talking rubbish. But yeah, I think Dash Dash is normally worth worth a few points. Obviously, um I'm sure we'll talk about transfers, but it's not been a great summer of recruitment again. I think the job is getting harder for him. Um obviously if you don't improve your team and everyone else does, you take a step backwards relatively, but I was talking to my brother about this the other day. It's not necessarily the other case because other teams can take a backwards step. We sort of stood in the same place, but all right, we lost to Brighton yesterday, but I think Brighton's team is worse than it was last season because they sold Ben White and the players that they brought in I don't think are enough to to address that. So just having the same team isn't necessarily a bad thing. Newcastle Mm. got the same team and they brought work in as well. So, yeah, I think... um, Dash's obviously got a big challenge on. Last season, he said it was his biggest achievement keeping us up um, with everything going on with COVID, um, the players that we let go on free transfers that he wanted to keep. Whenever we had injuries, we were down to the bare bones, struggling to fill the bench. It was it was a real slog of a season. And I think Dash, like some of the other managers like Nuno, he really missed the sort of energy of the fans. I think some some clubs seem to adapt to it a lot better than others, and I don't think we adapted to not having fans in the stadium well at all. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think most people would say, while Dash is at Burnley, they've got a very good chance of staying up. Um, but then yesterday at half time, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be a great season. We're going to finish in the top half again. Like we, I think twice in the last four years, we finished in the top half, but people still tip us to go down. And and then we lost the game. So, yeah, uh, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. And then uh, I think it was uh, Jake that mentioned earlier, you know, small sample sizes. This <laughs> is literally the first week yeah, of the season. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think uh, we should have to be too worried about you. But, uh, yeah, I agree. I think the squad's been 
stagnant there for a while. But as you mentioned, Newcastle, I, I think Crystal Palace an even better example. Obviously, they're in their refresh now. But they had the same squad for like six years, and they were safe the whole time. So uh, agree that sometimes it's about yeah, not making the wrong moves like Sunderland did exactly. for like two or three years in a row before going down. Or Southampton. Yeah, or like Southampton right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's pros and cons to it. I think if you have the, the sort of stable core of 14 to 16 players that we've had for the last few years, you know exactly what you're going to get. They all know what Daesh expects of them and will deliver that more often than not. Obviously, you would like to add more quality and freshen it up. Um, and I think a lot of clubs, the manager's message sort of, the players start switching off from it for a bit. After a little while, you see managers struggling to make an impact in sort of the third season. There's a lot of that around these days, but that's just been at Burnley seven, eight years now. A lot of the players, like Ben Mee's been at Burnley the whole time. Dash has been here. Most of that team that we had out yesterday has been at the club three, four seasons at least. So um, we are a known quantity, which means that we should be easy to play against, but most teams don't find it easy to play against Burnley. So I think it, it could be a long season. Our start to the season with the games that we've got is quite rough on paper. Obviously, yesterday, Brighton at home, the sort of game you'd expect to get points from, that didn't happen. But like I said, the way we played in the first half, um, and we hit the woodwork twice after taking the lead. So it's fine margins to use a, a Sean Dyche-ism. Um, we could have easily been 3-0 up at half-time and then seen that game out quite comfortably. And then all the moon music is different. People think Burnley are going to have a really good season. Talking about Brighton being relegation candidates. So it just shows how quickly things can change. Um one of the things that did concern me is how tired our players looked in the second half. Um, we had some leggy displays in the second half last season. You kind of understood that because the players have been flogged playing twice a week. We had no chance to rotate because we had 12 players fit for most of the season. Um, but apart from a couple of lads at the Euros, Chris Wood went to the Olympics. We've had a full pre-season. Most of our players haven't had any injury issues. So I was really quite concerned that we seem to run out of gas in the second half, but maybe it was just a case of the first half they went too hard because of the adrenaline from the crowd. I don't know what it is, but you'd really expect Burnley to be one of the fittest teams in the league. And on, on the evidence yesterday, that's not going to be the case. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Gotcha. We'll certainly keep an eye on that and, and good luck for the season. I'm not sure it'll be easy, but... As we said before the show, I, I think you'll end up being just fine. And it seems like that's kind of the consensus with Dice still there at the helm. All right, uh, we're just about out of time, but I figure we'll quickly go through Player Watch, where I was just curious uh, who your man of the match was for this week and which player at your club do you think will win that award the most this season? Um, yeah, uh, probably today and every most games of season. I think Alan St. Maximan is going to mm. get a lot of plaudits. Because he, and I think he's a player that he hasn't really played in front of like a full crowd that often. He was sort of injured for his first half of the season. He he didn't get into the team straight away where he was adapting, um, and then he sort of started to find form in that January February time. And then obviously COVID hit, and he's been playing behind closed doors since. He's had his moments behind closed doors, but he's definitely the type of player that that would thrive with a crowd. I think we saw that especially in the first half today. Um, the, the only thing with him might be that we, it's so predictable with trying to get the ball to him that he will he will drop deep. Like I think it was on the the second West Ham goal today, and they they'll just um, defend uh, they'll just 
tried to press him on the halfway line because we were quite vulnerable. We just sort of go commit everybody forward. He drops deep, and if you nick the ball off him there, you're going to concede goals because we only have three men back and they're on opposite sides of the pitch really well, spread out the back three. So it didn't look great, but I think he's just so eye catching. And I think that he, after a year and a half, I sort of, I guess, a year and a half Premier League football, we didn't really play a lot for the first half season. After a year and a half of that, um, and now with fans back, I think he's ready for a really big breakout year. Uh, you know, we talk about him and Adama Chari being quite similar players, but I think with St. Maximan, there's an end product there. He maybe doesn't try to put the ball in and shoot as often as he should. But he, as opposed to try always, when he kicks the football, he doesn't look that convincing. So Maxman has has technique in, in in his crosses and passes and shots. That if he did start to take that next step, he could easily you know get quite a few goals and assists this season. Uh, he obviously got the assist for the first goal today. Um, and yeah, I think he's gonna have a really good season. I think um, he's he's always he always catches the eye because he beats people and he dribbles with the ball because that's you know, fans take more notice of that than they do of a player that puts in, tw- you know, 10 tackles in a game. But yeah, he's really going to be one that I think um, breaks out this year and has a really good season and probably going to get a lot of man of the match awards. Um, you see the Sky commentators or whoever commentating on the game. They normally pick players like that to, to win those man of the match awards. So yeah, I think when Newcastle win matches this year, I think he's probably going to be one that, that takes a lot of the plaudits. Yeah, I think it's it was a difficult one for us to to pick out players because it was such a, a game of two halves type one to to use cliche. I think Goodmanson had a strong first half. Obviously, he hit the post um, with a chance that really he maybe should have played in Chris Wood instead of shoot. It was one of those that as soon as he refused to pass, it was like you kind of have to score now. You've not played him in on goal, and then he hit the post and you're like, well, he nearly scored. But he didn't score, so it's still like you should have passed. Um, but yeah, I think me and you, Kev, both fans of Goodmanson. When he's fit, I think he's really, really strong player yeah. for us. It's just that he's just not fit nearly often enough. So it, similar to Sam Maximin, I don't think he's got the quality of Sam Maximin. Um, but the sort of same ability to get bums off seats, he's a goal threat on both feet. Um, he's unpredictable, so he's got the same sort of X factor, probably not to the same standard, but it is consistency and fitness with him. So, especially given we've only got two wingers in the squad, we really need him to to not get injured, which would be great. Um, so, fingers crossed that happens. And I've forgotten the second part of the question. What was the second part of the question? Oh, just who will win it the most this season? But who will win it the most? This season. Or McNeil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Um, I think Tarkovsky might have got the official man of the match. and He had a strong performance at the back. He had a good battle with Neil Morpé. Um, I don't think he was at fault for either goals. It was sort of mistakes before it got to to the two lads in the middle of the defence. He couldn't really do anything about it. He obviously scored the goal from a corner. Um, I think that was one of the things that he needed to add to his game. Um, and I think Tarkovsky will be really motivated this season because he's in the last year of his contract. He signalled that he's not going to renew at Burnley, so He's in a strong position to negotiate a move as a free agent next year. But to do that, you have to have a good year, stay fit, stay injury-free, behave yourself. So, I think it's a big year for James Tarkovsky. I fully expect him to stay completely committed. I'm not questioning his motivation or anything. I think he'll he'll give everything every week because he's that sort of character. Um, But I think he'll, he'll have a good few games. And if we are to stay up, which I think we will, despite the disappointment of the weekend, 
And Tarkovsky will have to have a big season and he's our best defender. So I think he'll have quite a few man of the match displays over the course of the year. Gotcha. All right. We will leave things there. If you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you've been working on, now's a great time. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Jake Jackson with two ends where I'll plug anything I'm involved in. Yeah, it's great to be back on the pod and great to have football to talk about again. Uh, this season I've launched a new newsletter about Burnley stuff with uh, the guys at Known and Ever who I used to do the podcast and stuff with. So you can get that at Known and Ever um, and that's on Substack and I tweet the link all the time, like so many times from my own Twitter, which is Jamie Smith Sports. You can follow me there as well. Yeah, and as a special reward for actually showing up to the show, you know, we'll retweet that for you as well as one yes. of the, the incentives in your contract. That there. is the only reason I agreed to come on the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I would have watched Love Island. Um, I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter, at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable and find it uh, EPL Roundtable on any of your podcasting apps. But thanks to you two so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. The Premier League is back, and we hope you enjoyed listening. That's not how I do the outro. <laughs> but yeah, thanks again to these. <laughs> you were still laughing. <laughs> but yeah, thanks again to these two guys for coming on again. It's so exciting to have the Premier League back. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Yeah, fuck it. I'll fix it or I won't. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 